0: John chapter 1, we're continuing in the series called Missio Christi, which is Latin for the mission of Christ. The title of this message is flesh because Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. So we're talking about the incarnation and its implications for living a life on mission. Our artist is back in the saddle and he's Painted this lovely picture here, and uh, it's not your normal sort of painting or portrayal, the incarnation, that's usually the Bethlehem thing, and in the manger, and little animals around, and Christmassy, but this isn't like that, this is like Jesus is a teenager, and there he is, working with his hands as a carpenter in his father's shop, and I want you to know some of the the powerful nuances of the painting, that Christ is there, and he's working, and the mass of humanity is gathered around and and later on come up and look at the painting. But Christ is looking back at humanity and humanity is looking to them. And we see portrayed within the painting, the plight of humanity, a beggar there and and, uh, children and different folks. And, And there's this connection because Christ connected with humanity through the incarnation. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this morning, that rich theology would become even more wonderful to us, more real, more powerful, more potent. We pray that Holy Spirit of God, you would breathe life into us, that we'd be a people set on fire for the glory of God, that you would free us from the trappings of our own drama and our own little worlds, and you would give us your heart for the world Your heart for people, for humanity, and the plight of humanity and you give us a greater desire to see you glorified in our lives and in the nations. Holy Spirit, revive us this morning. We've been invited into the life of God, but we need you to breathe the life of God into us and to work newness in us, to transform us. We ask that you would do a wonderful work in us, that we'd be more like Jesus. We better represent Christ. a lost, dying, and hurt world, and we more experience the power of God working in us and through us. So Holy Spirit, do that thing for which Christ sent you. Teach the church now, and empower the church now to live for the glory of God. We ask you together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, we've been talking about the mission of Christ, and we're trying to discover what this means. That Jesus said on two occasions in the Gospels, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. What does it mean that we are sent in the same way that Jesus was sent? How are we to understand that? How are we to live that? And one of our grand goals for this series, Missio Christi, is that as the church, we want to recapture our sense of, of sentness. It's my estimation that to a large degree, the church in America has lost that. We no longer see ourselves as a sent people, sent to where we are right now in our immediate context by God for the glory of God. We need to recapture our sense of sentness. We're an apostolic sent people of God, by God, for the glory of God. And what we want to see happen through the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst is that every Christian here is liberated to live life on mission in his or her immediate context. No longer living a mediocre life, no longer thinking mission is for them, or maybe someday I'll do it over there. But where you are right now, being liberated to live and manifest and participate in the life of God. This particular message will have two parts, at least. When you're reading the New Testament and the epistles, particularly the Pauline epistles, the epistles written by Paul, you'll notice that they usually follow a certain format, that the first part of them is identifying a problem and addressing it theologically. Paul's what we call a problem theologian or a drama theologian. When there's drama or problems in the church, he would address it theologically through the letters that now become to us a large part of the New Testament. So the first part of this, will follow that. We'll be, we'll be kind of identifying the problem and seeking to address it theologically. The second part will be what Paul usually did was then turn to application. How do we then apply, live, flesh out what we now know? How do we deal with the problem having now this theological understanding in daily living? So this week will be theological, slightly theological, and and next week hopefully will be practical. I want us to read a few verses here in John chapter 1 to sort of launch us and get us thinking about Christ made flesh. Verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's it talking about? Jesus. Can you say the name as it should be said? Who is it talking about? Jesus. Oh, thank you, church. I love you. Yes, Jesus. And here we get some beginning inklings of that Trinitarian understanding. He was with God. He also is God. God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Christ created all things. Verse 4, in him was life. Christ is a giver of life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness, that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, speaking of Jesus, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here we have this incredible revelation of the incarnation of God that Jesus Christ, the preeminent one, the preexistent one, stepped into history by draping himself in humanity. If scripture were a mountain range, this would be the tallest peak, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And of course, we can't speak about his incarnation without speaking about the cross. And we don't speak about the cross without the resurrection. And we don't speak of the resurrection without Christ in glory. And so the incarnation stands as the tallest, most glorious, beautiful mount in the range of scripture. And it's the most wonderful revelation of love. Love that God came to us more than just coming to us. He became like us, as Hebrews said, because the brethren share in flesh and blood. He himself took on flesh and blood. That he was touched with a feeling of our infirmities, tempted in all ways as we are, yet is without sin. That he identified, get that phrase, that he identified himself fully with humanity by taking on flesh because we are flesh that he might save us through the cross. And what we learn in this, that Christ took on flesh, is that the Trinity is not a closed entity. But the Trinity that we spoke of previously is not a closed entity. Here's what I mean. Through the cross, humanity is invited to participate in the life of God. Through the repentance of sins and the forgiveness of sins, humanity is invited to participate in the life of God. That's what 2 Peter 1.4 is talking about when it says we become partakers of the divine. We become participants in the divine life of God. Not that we become God or gods. Not that we necessarily become like God but that we are invited into the life of God to participate, to experience that relationship of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But before the cross, humanity is approached by God through the incarnation. Jesus draping himself in human flesh. And our understanding of this, as it's mentioned in the Old Testament, and revealed clearly in the New Testament, is that Christ in the flesh is Emmanuel. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. That God came to be with us, though we were in rebellion, separated by our sins, hostile to God. In His incredible nature of love, He made Himself like unto us, and came to us, that he might save us. And what this is, is an expression of the very essence of God, the nature of God as a sending God, a missionary God. It's his very nature because he's love and a community to reach out. And so the father sends the son. And what we're exploring is the fact that the Son sends us in the same way. As the Father has sent me, I now send you. What does that mean? What does it mean in a biblical context, in the first century world, in a predominantly Hebraic or Jewish mindset to which the Gospels were first given? What does it mean? That someone was sent. Not just anyone. Understand that that Jesus was sent as a particular person. Jesus is sent as the son of God. It's not that God sent an ambiguous entity or person. But he sent his very son. what does it mean in a biblical first century Hebraic mindset. For a son to be sent. Well first of all it was a common thing. It was a common feature of Jewish life that if a father had an important message to deliver, he had some options. He, he could send the hired help and that was common in those days that they might have and send a servant to deliver the message. But, but if the message was too profound and if it was too important, if the message had to be safeguarded and protected and perfectly delivered, then he wouldn't send a hired servant. He would only send his son. And preferably the firstborn son. For God so loved the world, he gave, he sent his son. Hebrews 1, in times past, long ago, God spoke to us in the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Because the message is too profound. It was to be safeguarded and perfectly delivered. And so the way that we see Jesus then revealed in the Gospels is as the only unique Son of God sent by His Heavenly Father. And He's been entrusted with and sent on mission in order to, get this, reveal His sender. Jesus was sent to reveal the sender. I want you to hold on to that phrase. He was sent to reveal the sender and to complete the work of redemption. And the latter would take the incarnation and the former would take the crucifixion. He was sent to reveal the sender, required the incarnation, Christ draped in human flesh and to complete redemption, which would require the crucifixion, the cross. Now, in the same way we've been sent How are we to understand sentness, biblically speaking? Because we, I'm sure, have lots of ideas. But what does it mean to be sent as Jesus was sent? We're going to run through a few scriptures and a list of how the New Testament reveals sentness, particularly in the Gospel of John. And as we go through these now, I want us to be thinking about the implications for mission in our own lives. How does this affect the way that we see ourselves as sent by Christ for the glory of God? Here's what it means to be sent, biblically speaking. The first thing is that the sent one is to know the sender intimately. That's where it starts. The sent one is to know the sender intimately. John chapter 7, if you'll turn there real quick. We're going to look at a bunch of verses, so you've got to move quick. John chapter 7, verse 29. Look what Jesus reveals about his sentness. John 7, 29. Jesus says, speaking to the Father, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Jesus knew the Father and what we see in the interplay in the relationship is he knew him intimately, obviously. And so the implications for us is that all ministry and mission flows from intimacy. The sent one is to know the sender intimately. What follows on that and what's further revealed is that the sent one is to live in continual close relationship with the sender. Look in chapter 8, verse 16. John eight sixteen. Jesus says, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true for I am not alone in it but I am the one who sent me denoting close relationship verse 18 I am he who bears witness of myself and the father who sent me bears witness of me relational consonants verse 29 and he who sent me is with me He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And because Christ was sent and the Father was with him and the Father did not leave him alone, therefore we have Christ echoing this to us in our sentness in the Great Commission when he says, Lo, I am with you always. So what does it mean biblically to be sent? It means to be an intimate relationship and in continual closeness with the one that sends you next the sent one is to bring glory and honor to the sender John 7 again verse 18 John 7:18 Jesus says he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him Jesus didn't seek his own glory, but the glory of the one who sent him, the Father. Furthermore, the sent one is to do the sender's will. John 6, verses 38 and 39. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So Jesus, being the sent one, was committed to the will of the sender. What does it mean to be sent? The sent one not only does the sender's will, but he does the sender's work. John 5 now, verse 36. Jesus again, in John 5, 36, says, But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. So to be sent means that we do the work of the sender. Furthermore, to be sent means that the sent one is following the sender's example. Jesus explains this in John 13. Furthermore, the sent one is to be accountable to the sender. We see this in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17 where he says to the father, of all that you've given me, I haven't lost one but the son of perdition. He's accountable to that which the father has entrusted to him. Furthermore, the sent one is to bear witness of the sender, John 12. Look there, John 12. verses is 44 and 45. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. So to be sent means to bear witness of the sender. And finally, the sent one, biblically speaking, is to exercise the delegated authority of the sender. Look right there in John 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. So, this here is a snapshot of what it means to be sent. These are the ways in which Christ was sent. He was sent in intimacy, in close relationship, to give glory and honor to the Father, to do the sender's will, the sender's work, speak the sender's words, follow the sender's example, to be accountable to the sender, bear witness of the sender, and exercise the delegated authority of the sender. What we then see of the life of Christ in the Gospels is that he fulfills perfectly... The role of a sent son. He guards that message. He delivers perfectly that message. He's the perfect example of one who is sent. So that then Christ becomes a model for those who would follow him. For you and I in the way that we are to live in this world and view ourselves as individuals and as a church. He becomes a perfect model having fulfilled perfectly the role of the sent son. And what we see is Jesus in this mediary place being both sent and sender. That's what we're wanting to discover. How do we live? How are we sent by Jesus in the way he was sent by the Father? And what we cannot escape is that what it meant for Jesus to be sent was to become incarnate in flesh. He always existed in the triunity, the community of the triune God. But when he was sent to humanity, it meant that he took on flesh, that he became incarnate. So in some sense that we'll unpack over the next couple of weeks, for us to do mission like Jesus did mission means to do it incarnate. Oh, we'll try to unpack that. Look what verse 18 says the incarnation accomplishes of John 1. John 1.18. Look what it says the incarnation accomplishes. John 1.18 says, No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Look what the incarnation of Jesus accomplishes. No one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten God, there we see that Trinitarian thing, that Jesus is the Son and He is God. The only begotten God, He has explained Him. So when Christ became flesh, because in verse 14 it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When He took on human flesh, that was... An explanation of who God is. It was a delivery vehicle for the message, for the salvation. The incarnation explains to us who God is. The word in the Greek for explained is exigeomai. We get our word exegesis from that, which is just a fancy preacher way of saying explain. But you who are Bible students know that you want to exegete scripture. What does it mean that word in the Greek to exegete? It means to lead or bring out. That's what we want Bible teachers to do, to bring out what's in the text. Hence, to make known, to declare, to unfold. The incarnation of Jesus was the unfolding of who God is. It was the revealing, the explanation, the exegesis, the declaration of the love and the nature and the essence of God. So the incarnation explains God to such a degree in all that Christ was and did that the New Testament in Colossians 1.15 is able to say that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Literally, he's the exact representation of the invisible God. So that we now are able to say this, if you want to know what God is like, look at Christ in the flesh. That's what we're able to say from scripture and from the incarnation. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And that works. Because Jesus perfectly explains God. He's the full and final revelation of God, as Hebrews 1 alludes to. What we're supposed to then be able to say is if you want to know what Jesus is like, if you want to know what Christ is like, look at Christians. That is where the New Testament takes us. If you want to know what God is like, look at Christ. That works. Perfect representation. If you want to know what Christ is like, look at Christians. And I'm not sure that that works as well. And the deficiency is not in the design of God. Not in the fact that Christ sent us. The deficiency is in our faithfulness or should I say our faithlessness. That we haven't been faithful with our sentness. It works. You want to know God, you look at Christ. It seems to be falling apart. You want to know Christ, look at Christians. In my own life, I've been reading the Gospels and I've discovered something that I'm calling the great disparity. Disparity means great difference, so it's redundant by design. The great, great difference. Here's what I mean. If I encountered someone here in the community and I told them I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, and they happen to just be naive enough to want to discover what that means by looking at the primary text, the gospels, the primary revelation of Jesus. To go discover, Britt says he follows Christ. What must that look like then? What can I glean about his life? What can I find out about Christ? And if they went and looked at the gospels, what is haunting me personally is that there is very little that is concrete That they would discover in Christ that they also see in me. There is, I'm discovering, a great disparity, a great, great difference between who Christ was in the flesh and who Christ is in me. They would see almost nothing concrete to connect me with Jesus. I might have some stuff that I would say to them, oh, oh but here's how I'm like Jesus. And they might eventually draw some skewed conclusions like, oh, Britt, you know, he doesn't get drunk or he doesn't do this and that, but, but they're not reading the Gospels to see did Jesus get drunk. They're not gonna read the Gospels and come away and say, oh, He didn't get drunk. They're going to read the gospels and say, oh, how Christ loved people. How merciful he was. How kind he was. How much grace he gave to the people. How he touched the lepers. How he healed the lame and the sick. How he set free the woman caught under the burden of the law. How he went out of his way to minister to the woman who was trapped in sexual immorality. And in that way, there's a great disparity. And I wish I were alone in this, but I don't think I'm alone. I think that what we have in the church in America is a great disparity between who Christ was in the flesh and how that's fleshed out in our daily living. There's a book out called Unchristian by someone named David Kinnaman. I suggest that you get it. It's a shame to me and to the church that this book had to be written. It's about how the world sees us as unchristian. He says this, among young outsiders, meaning young, not yet Christians, 84% say they personally know at least one committed Christian. It's good news. Yet only 15% Thought the lifestyle of those Christ followers were significantly different from the norm. That's bad news. The church is scattered. 84% of young, not yet Christians know a committed Christian. But the church is not living like Jesus as it's scattered because only 15% said they noticed some difference, some distinctive quality. Some Christ-likeness that wasn't like the norm. And what we are supposed to do as a church is not go to church, but be the church. In a way that if you want to know what God is like, you look at Christ. If you want to know what Christ is look at like, you look at the Christians. And we're to be scattered everywhere, not gathered all the time. Sent into the world. And when we scatter, when we, when we leave the church building and the church function and the church concert and the church coffee shop, when, when we leave the church stuff, gathering place, what we're supposed to be is missionally Intentional. To see ourselves as sent to be on mission wherever we find ourselves. Not withdrawn from the world. Not seeing ourselves as set up to be combative with culture. And also not conforming to culture. We are to go into the world and love the people that God loves. And God loves the biggest gnarliest, dirtiest, most wrongest sinners in the world. Sometimes we think that God began to love us when we became Christians. But Romans says that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, enemies of God. And we're supposed to go into the world and love the very people that God loves. But what we've sometimes done is alienated, declared war on, and withdrawn from the people that need Jesus most. In a book by a guy named Dick Staub called The Culturally Savvy Christian, he identifies three mistakes that Christians often make in the world. We have a tendency to either cocoon, combat, or conform. I'll speak on each one briefly. We have a tendency to cocoon. What is a cocoon? You know what a cocoon is. Here's a definition, a protective case, a covering, something suggestive of a cocoon in appearance or purpose. But get this, to retreat from a harsh or unfriendly environment. Now, the more Christian you are, the more you realize how harsh and unfriendly the environment is. You realize that. That there's this friction. There's this difficulty. But what we're not supposed to do is cocoon. To retreat from that environment. To do that is contrary to the very nature of the incarnation. Incarnation. While humanity was hostile to Christ, he went to them. And that is the model for our mission. To cocoon is to dishonor the teachings of Christ, the model of Jesus. We are to have discernment in the world, but we're not to utterly disassociate ourselves from the world. John 3.16, we all know. John 3.17, we seldom realize. Christ did not come to judge the world, but to save the world, that the world might be saved through him. So committed to this is Christ and our sending that when he prays to the Father in John 17, he says, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Because he knew that there would come a time in our Christian lives, in our church experience, where we would want to go out of the world. Where we would fall into escapism. And the more you love Jesus, the more there's a degree of this. The more you see how wonderful he is, the more you want to be with him. You become a suicidal Christian. It's not good. Jesus said, Father, don't take them out of the world. Do protect them from the evil one, he prayed. But specifically, he would send us into the world as he was sent. So to cocoon, to withdraw from the world, to alienate the world through a cocooning, is to violate the example and the teachings of Jesus and the very nature of the incarnation. Now why do we do this? Uh, This is why we do this. We we, we do this because we have been and we are tempted by the things of the world. And and we realize the difficulty it is to be in the world for our personal holiness and purity. And that is a problem. But I'll remind us today that we are more than overcomers through Christ Jesus. Jesus that we have the victory of his resurrection from the dead, that we've been given a new nature, that our new nature is now dead to sin and alive to Christ and that that fear cannot rule us for we've not been given a spirit of fear but of power and of love. And what happens is that personal holiness and purity become the goal. They're not the goal, they're a goal. Participating in the life of Christ is the goal. And one could say that there is no participation in the life of Christ without experiencing and being on mission with Christ. So we err in that way. I err in that way. The other way that we err, besides cocooning, is combating. Definition: a fight, a contest of violence, a struggle for supremacy, to resist, to oppose to antagonize, to repel. Now I understand that we are in a battle, that there is a battle. But what we need to realize is that in that battle, people are the prize, not the enemy. God loves people. Paul said it this way, we do not battle against flesh and blood but powers and principalities of spiritual forces of wickedness. But we've taken the prize, the men and women who need Jesus the most and set them up as the enemy. We need to be reminded that prayer and truth are the weapons that are powerful with God for tearing down speculations, not power and influence. And that culture is changed through spiritual transformation in people, not primarily political process. That what Jesus labored at day in and day out was the spiritual transformation of people. He stepped into being able to step in any moment in history he wanted to. He stepped into a moment in history where Israel was horribly politically and religiously oppressed. But his strategy was spiritual transformation in people. Not the politicizing of Judaism or the overthrowing of Roman imperialism. What we simply need to learn to do is to love people. In that book, Un-Christian, David Kinneman also says this. He says, The primary reason that outsiders, not yet Christians, feel hostile toward Christianity is not because of any specific theological perspective. Listen. What they react negatively to is our swagger, how we go about things, and the sense of self-importance we project. Outsiders say that Christians possess bark and bite. Christians may not normally operate in attack mode, but it happens frequently enough that others have learned to watch their step around us. And that's the tragedy. Because if they're watching their step around us, how do we get into their lives to speak to them about Jesus? Jesus. You see, we we set ourselves up in a purely antagonistic stance. The author continues and says, we are known for having an us versus them mentality. Outsiders believe Christians do not like them because of what they do, how they look, or what they believe. They feel minimized or worse, demonized by those who love Jesus. Jesus. We, we need to overcome that by being more loving than we are combative. There is a battle, but people are the prize, not the enemy. And finally, we also don't want to conform. To conform means to be in accord or harmony, to comply, to be obedient, to submit, to be similar, get that, to be similar, to be in line with to adjust or adapt oneself. We are not to be similar with the unbelieving world to the unbelieving world. We're not to be in line with the unbelieving world. We are to be salt and light. And salt is only salty when it's salty. And light is only meaningful when it isn't darkness, when it's in contrast to the darkness. Jesus was distinct His people are to be distinct. We're not to conform. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're to live transformed lives that don't conform, but they do love. They don't cocoon. They reach out as light goes out by its very nature. And what some of us seem to be caught in, in the church in America, is an outdated and extinct framework, that of Christendom. Christendom is what historians look back on and call what happened after the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian. Or not, it's debatable. And what happened in the fourth century when Roman Empire looked favorably upon Christianity. It went from being religio illicita, an illegal religion, to having favored status. And, and Christians went from being a hunted and marginalized people to now being a political, powerful people. And there are certain ways that God used that, there are other ways that that was not productive for the gospel and the kingdom of God, and the glory of God. But what is the point is, we are no longer living in a societal context of Christendom, where the church is a powerful political entity that moves along with kings across the globe. I don't want to discount what any political, powerful influence we might have in culture. I simply want to highlight that Christ worked from the margins. That he didn't politicize Judaism. He didn't overthrow Roman imperialism. He worked on personal transformation of those who would follow him. And that changed the world. And I would make an argument that historically speaking, the church has worked best from the margins. And the reason that I warn us about this is because we are becoming the church on the margins. As history progresses, our context of North America, the church will become increasingly marginalized and we're not to fear that. We're to see the opportunity in that, that Christ worked from the margins. And that's the framework that we need to begin to work from. But who he reached out to were the marginalized, the oppressed, the broken. And the way that he did that was in the ultimate expression of love in the Incarnation. And what we'll unpack over the next couple of weeks is what it looks like practically for us to be incarnate like Christ, to be Christ in the flesh to people. We have a long ways to go. Do you know what the common, the most common, excuse me, three perceptions of Christians in America is? Okay? The number, the, the top three ways that non Christians see Christians in America number one, anti homosexual. of non-Christians say that's the number one way they identify us. Number two, judgmental, 87%. Number three, hypocritical, 85%. Our identity in America is that we are anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. Jesus was none of those. That's our identity. Is that who we're supposed to be? Is that who Christ was? When Christ came to exegy to explain God, did he explain God as anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical? We are explaining God as anti-sexual, anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. It's not who we're supposed to be. God, we ask that you would transform us and thank you for your faithfulness even where we've been unfaithful thank you for our, your mercy in our lives Lord and your power and we just ask Holy Spirit for more of that transformative power make us more like the people of Christ that we would better explain Christ thank you Lord that You took on flesh. You humbled yourself. You were a servant and you went to the cross and you identified with us. And you might give us new life. Just work in us now, Lord, to be more like that, to begin to understand the wonder of that. Keep us...